You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. All right. Well, once again, we're joined by infectious disease expert, Dr. Ravi Vamuri. Um, returning to the podcast again, uh, Dr. Vamuri, you've joined us a few times now. We like to check in with you every few months as we continue to work through the pandemic um, for all the latest information and help make sense of a lot of the, the news that um, they the, all the headlines kind of come in very fast. So we like to bring in the experts to kind of help wade our way through all that. So thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're absolutely right. The <clears throat> torrent of information is just astounding. Somebody um, compared it to standing at Niagara Falls with a glass, trying to sort through the information. Well, well, we'll try to break this down into a few different topics um, for everybody. Right now, as we record this, it's the end of September 2021. We're headed into October, and um, we're headed into flu season. And so um, knowing that um, we're still dealing with COVID-19 and now heading into influenza, what should we expect this year? Yeah, we were very fortunate last year because as we headed into flu season, pretty much the country was still, for the most part, shut down to a certain extent. And people were practicing social distancing. There was widespread mask use. And we had uh, an uptick. Some people estimate a 20% uptick in influenza vaccination because people feared getting sick with both agents. So as a result, we basically didn't have a flu season in 2020. It was highly unusual. Um, While we were being overrun with COVID, uh, I think uh, at most uh, during the entire flu season, I saw only two cases of flu and they were very mild. So it it was a very unusual year. But this year, uh, things are a little different. I think uh, the public in general has tired of mask wearing, even though it's still very important because we have very high community transmission of COVID. And now we're going to be entering to the, into the flu season. And, uh, you know, we're going to have the usual interactions that people tend to have in the fall, especially here in the Midwest, uh, you know, football games, basketball games, high school sports, college sports. Um, you know, there are a lot of gatherings that happen, and this is where respiratory viruses get transmitted. Um, so, you know, while we're still in the midst of very high COVID transmission, uh, you know, by wearing a mask when you're out in public and keeping your family bubble small uh, and practicing social distancing, you can, um, uh, you know, try to avoid getting both infections. Of course, you know, we have the annual influenza vaccine. And just like last year, it's going to be very important to get that vaccine. Some people have asked me, you know, how do they figure out what strains to put in? Because we really didn't have a flu season last year. As you may know, every year they change the formula a little bit based on what's happened the previous year. Well, the answer to that question is they can only go by whatever data they have and they will probably make it a very similar vaccine to the one that we had in, uh, in the previous year, but before the pandemic. So yeah, it's gonna be important for people to go ahead and get vaccinated against influenza. 
So I know that people have this question because, um, like you mentioned, every year about this time, we um, ask everyone to get that vaccine for influenza. We're also in the middle uh, continuing to administer vaccines for coronavirus, COVID-19. So are there any issues about when you can get both of those vaccines if you haven't gotten one or the other? Can you get them at the same time even? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. A lot of people have that question. The CDC actually has come out and said that they can be administered simultaneously. Now, uh, on an individual basis, you know, how wise is that? Depends upon, I guess, uh, what you plan on doing the next day. So, um, you know, if you are an airline pilot and you have to fly cross country, I may not want to get both the same day because uh, definitely you're going to be sore and uh, you you may feel fatigued. You may even have a little fever. Uh, So, um, you know, if if you're not doing anything um, that momentous and you're just going about your day, theoretically, you could get both, obviously, in different arms the same day. But... uh, you know, that, that'll have to be an individual decision. I personally think that uh, when the booster is offered to me, uh, I, I will get the COVID booster. And if I hadn't, if I haven't received the influenza vaccine by that time, I will most likely get it as long as I'm there and, and get both of them and kind of act as a guinea pig to see, you know, what happens. But, uh, you know, people that have looked at this said, uh, you know, you'll feel sore. Uh, you might get a low-grade fever, but uh, it shouldn't really uh, do much more than that. So I, I think it's going to come up to be individual preference. I mean, no one's going to blame you if you take them like a week apart. You mentioned your booster, so let's talk about that. And again, this is something that is actively kind of, uh, there's new information coming out by the day. So depending on when, when people hear this, this part might be a little dated, but at least right now, as we talk today, Dr. Vermuri. Um, as far as third doses for immunocompromised individuals for the coronavirus vaccine and boosters for other people, what are the latest recommendations? What we know is approximately a month ago, the CDC did come out and say that regardless of which messenger RNA vaccine you received, if you are an immunocompromised host, and by that we mean, uh, for example, people with some sort of solid organ transplant, or a bone marrow transplant, or somebody who has an autoimmune disease that requires their immune system to be severely suppressed. I'm talking about people with like Crohn's disease or people with rheumatoid arthritis who receive monoclonal antibodies like Humira or Remicade, or uh, people who are currently undergoing active chemotherapy or radiation therapy for cancer. Uh, These types of individuals Uh, have been authorized for almost three to four weeks now to get a booster, and many have taken advantage of that. And and, and the guidance there is uh, you're eligible for booster 28 days or a month after your second shot. And and, and it doesn't matter which one you got, Pfizer or Moderna, you're you're, uh, eligible for a booster uh, for immunocompromised hosts. So that was the guidance that came up about, about a month ago. Now, just within the past three, four days, we have gotten some guidance on uh, the rest of us, those that are not immunocompromised in that manner. 
the Special Advisory Committee to the FDA met in session. These are open public sessions. Anybody could have logged on and watched the proceedings. Uh, I was on YouTube, I think. The, uh, the session answered a bunch of questions. And basically what they said is those individuals that are 65 and older who have received the Pfizer vaccine six or more months ago are now eligible for a booster regardless of their underlying health. So 65 and above, uh, if you received Pfizer uh, more than six months ago, you're now eligible for a booster. They also said people between the ages of 18 and 64 who have uh, comorbidities that might make them susceptible to more severe COVID-19 infection or breakthrough infection are eligible for boosters. Now, they only addressed the Pfizer. They did not address Moderna. They did not address J&J. Those discussions will be had later. You remember, Pfizer was the first one to come out. And it's Pfizer that uh, has been demonstrated in a huge Israeli study that shows waning immunity, uh, roughly six months uh, after getting your second shot. So it's based on that data that Pfizer presented to the FDA advisory committee, that committee came out and said this. And, and, and so th there's gonna be a whole host of people eligible for boosters. But remember, this is only for Pfizer recipients and you have to be six or more months out uh, from your second shot. And, and a lot of this information will become more and more clear as, as we work through it. And so, so again, if you know we're speaking here at the end of September, if, if people listening to this, if it's um, well beyond that, that, that scenario could be completely different today. So I want to keep that in mind. Um, okay, so let's talk about, um, since we're talking about vaccine, um, looking at the different age groups, um, when we get up into the 70 years old and 80 years old, the, the people who are vaccinated, that's a very good statistic in the United States. I think it's 80 or 90%. Um, that drops a little bit around 60. Um, but let's look at the, the younger age group. And I'm looking at like 18 to 24, where that percentage really drops. And um, I, I think it's only about 30 or 40%. I don't have that figure in front of me. But let's talk about... Um, those individuals who, for the most part, are young and healthy, why should they consider getting their vaccine for, for COVID-19? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right, uh, Adam. The uh, up vaccine uptake rate in that uh, age bracket that you mentioned uh, is uh, very suboptimal in terms of uh, uh, making our way towards so-called herd immunity. We don't like to use that term, but um, you know, with this Delta variant, people have recalibrated their estimates on what percentage of the whole population needs to be vaccinated to kind of approach that mythical uh, immunity that we're all striving for. And before, you know, people used to think that uh, with the previous variants, maybe 70% is enough. Now, many people in the know are saying we have to be north of 85%. So a uh, long-winded answer to your question is, uh, you know, th there's a lot of people that represent that uh, age uh, distribution that you just mentioned. So um, if we're going to try to achieve herd immunity and try to make this a more of a uh, routine seasonal coronavirus like the four other coronaviruses that we know about that cause the common cold, 
we need to achieve a very high degree of the population fully immunized. So, I, you know, for, for the person between 18 and 24 or 12 and 24 who's sitting there thinking about these things, uh, it is true that if you're young and healthy, the chances of you getting seriously ill and ending up in the hospital are, are much less compared to other age groups, but they're not zero. And we see this every day. I mean, our hospitals are full right now. And uh, in the Mercy One system, uh, we're averaging, uh, you know, we're basically in the red. We have people uh, sitting in the uh, emergency room waiting for a bed because all the beds are full. And guess what? They're all, uh, most of them are filled with COVID patients. Uh, so that's kind of unprecedented in modern history where a single diagnosis occupies so many of our beds. So yeah, uh, it's true that uh, statistically you have less chance of getting seriously ill, but the, but the chance isn't zero. Uh, you know, even if it's a five to 10% chance, that's a significant medical risk. So for the person uh, who's in that category, you know, you gotta do it to protect yourself so you don't fall into that maybe five to 10% that ends up in the hospital. Uh, if you have comorbidities, your chance of ending up in the hospital are even higher. You want to do it for the general good, for the public good, because you, we want to try to boost the immunity of the entire population as a whole. And you also want to do it for your family. I mean, your grandparents, your parents, uh, you know, your, your cousin that, you know, maybe has a kidney transplant. You don't want to be unwittingly uh, transmitting infection to them. So, so there are multiple reasons for that age group to get vaccinated. And uh, there's another more uh, public health reason, and that is, as long as there are people out there that are susceptible, that gives the virus the opportunity to infect them and replicate itself. And in the process of doing that, some sort of replication error occurs, and that, that's what we mean by a variant or a mutant. For example, the Delta variant is, is the result of a replication error that the virus made while it was replicating in somebody. And for whatever reason, uh, it made it more fit and more capable of transmission. So that became the dominant variant now that's throughout the world. So like that, as long as there are uh, people that are susceptible to the virus floating around out there in the community, they may unwittingly act as mixing vessels for the virus. And, and perhaps the next more, more, more dangerous variant might be brewing in them and, and that becomes problematic for everyone. So that's why it's important to uh, get, uh, important for everyone to get vaccinated. You, met, you mentioned hospital capacity and, and how that can play into, and, and one thing I I'm hoping that you can help explain is, you know, people check in on the different data trackers um, in the public health department or, or wider to United States, and they look at um, the number of open beds. And so how does that really provide a complete picture when we think about hospitals that are at capacity or full? Are there other factors that are taken into that account? Yeah, one thing people need to remember is uh, we have a severe healthcare worker shortage in this country, uh, especially nursing personnel. So any uh, hospital of any size in this country, in this day and age, has what are called blocked beds. And 
what we mean by that is we have the physical beds in the physical room, but we don't have the staff to staff those. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, there could be a hospital that has 800 beds and uh, uh, divided over a couple of campuses, but on any given day, uh, X number of beds could be blocked because we just don't have the personnel to take care of them. So if we have uh, 30 people holding in the emergency room waiting for a bed to clear out, um, if you just look at pure bed capacity alone, uh, you would think, well, why are they having so much problems? They, they say they have this many open beds. Yeah, physically, we might have the rooms, but you don't have the staff. Right. So, um, you know, healthcare worker shortage is a real problem. Um, it's going to be a persistent problem. And it's going to take all kinds of innovative solutions to get more people trained and uh, willing to do this type of work. We talked a little bit about um, some of those younger age groups, and and just this week, Pfizer says a study now shows that its shot is safe for kids ages 5 to 11. Um, That's not quite eligible today as we speak, but I think um, there might be some rumblings of a new emergency use authorization by about Halloween time, and that's obviously subject to change. We We can't really plan on that for sure, but let's talk about... let's. When, when we talk about adding that age group, 5 to 11, how, how much of that is expected to be a game changer for our fight against the pandemic? I, I think it'll be a huge game changer because uh, right now, of course, that is a very unprotected age group and they are going to school every day, potentially being exposed in uh, indoor settings. And, uh, you know, mask wearing uh, has become optional, basically, I think, uh, in many places. Uh, And so there's a risk of transmission uh, in those settings. And if we can protect those people and decrease that risk of transmission, uh, that's going to be great. The other thing is, uh, initially, in the early part of the pandemic, people thought children in that age group really didn't transmit that much. Uh, But now we're learning that they are capable of transmitting. And uh, so, you know, uh, kids of that age, uh, they themselves might not get all that sick, but uh, they can bring it home to older adults who who get sick and and they could be susceptible to breakthrough infections, even if they're fully vaccinated. So protecting all of those people with the vaccine is going to be very important. And, uh, you know, if you attend school in this country and in the state, you have to jump through a lot of vaccination hoops just to even attend school. So this is going to be just another vaccine that you're going to have to take to attend school, I think. And uh, it's going to be very important uh, for that category of people uh, to be fully vaccinated. And that should drive up our vaccination percentage as a whole. Yeah, I think most people that are in tune to to their local communities know that the topic of masks in schools is pretty a pretty hot topic right now. Um, so adding that age group to, to the vaccination eligibility should help relieve the pressure on that a little bit um, in the public debate. Um, and, you know, too, you, you kind of said about the other vaccinations that we need to attend school. Just a reminder that, like, you know, for in, in instance, the meningitis vaccine, like that's a requirement for, for kids to attend public school. So we're not quite there yet with with COVID, but that could be a reality someday. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, not only for, you know, the grade school children, many 
both public and private universities won't let students stay in their dorms unless they're vaccinated against one, some, some even two meningitis vaccines. So, you know, this business of uh, getting va taking vaccines to be, uh, to be eligible to do certain things, attend school, attend college, uh, you know, to travel internationally, uh, these things have already existed for decades and decades. And uh, I'm kind of surprised at why people all of a sudden think that this might be problematic. But, uh, uh, you know, th this is a disease uh, that has claimed uh, over 670,000 of our fellow citizens and counting. Uh, and uh, the, unfortunately, we're seeing younger and younger people die. Uh, the, the death rate, the admission rate, the serious infection rate is skewing younger uh, compared to the previous surges we've lived through. So here's something that I've heard out there, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to address it when we talk about, uh, we, well, you know, we just talked about required vaccines to attend public schools and colleges. And so one of the, one of the counterpoints to that that I've heard is that um, this vaccine is still too new and we don't know enough about it that we can put a requirement like that in place. Um, what is your counter argument to that if there is one? I shouldn't maybe say counter argument, but what is the additional context that you'd like to put there? I, I think the context that people need to keep in mind is uh, that, that uh, statement is true to a certain extent in, in the sense that obviously uh, these vaccines have been around for less than a year in their um, approved usage forms, but, but the research that went into developing them is over two to three decades old. All the molecular biology research that first conceived of this. It's not like, uh, you know, COVID appeared and then suddenly in January, somebody said, oh, let's try this technique. I, I mean, people have been honing these techniques for a long time. That's one thing. The second thing is, uh, you know, never in the history of modern medicine, I think, has anything, for example, if I'm an individual who's sitting on the fence and who hasn't received the vaccine yet, and suddenly tomorrow I decide to receive this vaccine, what I can take comfort in knowing is never in the history of modern medicine has anything that I have ever taken been tried in so many people before I first take it. For example, on September 25th, 2021, if I decide to get this shot for the first time, over a billion of these shots of the various COVID vaccines that are out there have already been administered. Nothing like that has ever happened in modern medicine. If there was some signal of concern uh, relating to serious adverse events, Statistically, one would think that after a billion of these have been administered, we should have seen these signals. And for those that are concerned about vaccine adverse events, the system works wonderfully. As you may recall, the J&J &J vaccine was paused for a while because, listen to this, just six adverse events out of 25 million administered was detected. So, so, so the adverse event uh, detector was good enough to detect those six events that caused the entire thing to be put on pause. People that are really smart at analyzing data looked at it and decided that, yes, 
this does happen, but it's still an extremely rare event. The benefit still outweighs the risk and they modified the uh, administration of that vaccine. So, so today we typically don't like to give that to females between the ages of 18 and 60, just because the adverse event reporting system detected that. So for those that are concerned about adverse events, the vaccine adverse event reporting system is capable of detecting even small uh, incidents of things like that. And, and, and since the J&J has come out, I think total we've had about 50 or 55 uh, of those adverse events and about three or four people uh, unfortunately died, but still that's considering, you know, millions and millions of doses given. Um, another thing when we talk about requirement for events and, and things now, now that we are doing more things like going to concerts and football games and things like that. So, so there are many events now that you have to have a proof of vaccination or at least a negative test result to attend these things. Um, so for the, for the individuals that don't have a proof of vaccination, they need to have this negative test result. What re what resources are out there for people to get that negative to, to to obtain that test? Um, I know that we're kind of seeing more people in urgent care settings, which is actually slowing things down for people that need to be in urgent care. So, what other resources are available? Yeah, that's a great question. So since we are in this uh, surge and uh, there's so much demand uh, for testing of people that are coming to the urgent cares, the emergency rooms, uh, we've actually uh, run short of some testing supplies. So this uh, so-called uh, uh, proof of uh, no infection of asymptomatic people to attend events, you know, that's gonna be a little bit difficult to justify when we have so many sick people that require testing that we're having difficulty getting timely tests on. Hopefully, as we get over this surge, as we get more and more people vaccinated, as uh, people practice more public health measures, uh, hopefully we get to a point where that type of thing becomes available very readily. Um, you know, there are at-home tests, uh, I think Test Iowa, the program that the state runs, has morphed into kind of an at-home test uh, protocol. So, for example, if I need to attend a concert, uh, you know, 25 days from now, and I know that I need to have, uh, and let's say I'm not vaccinated, uh, and I need to have uh, proof of negative test within 72 hours of the concert date, you know, now's the time to start planning on where you're going to get that test, be it through Test Iowa, be it through going to your local drugstore and getting a uh, test and do an at-home test uh, that can either be mailed in or uh, it can be supervised by your own physician. So that there are a number of modalities available. But um, you know, if I'm planning on attending that type of event, I shouldn't put off my planning till you know, three days before and suddenly expect to walk in somewhere and get a test because we might still be in a surge. And if you're totally asymptomatic, they might send your test off to some reference lab. The turnaround time might be three to four days and you might miss your concert. You see what I'm saying? So people need to plan. 
And, you know, but that, but the best thing to do is to get vaccinated. You were on the same page that I was there. Rather than having to go get a negative test result for everything you want to attend, you could just go get your shot and be done with it. <laughs> and I wanted to also note, too, you know, when it comes to at-home tests, at least here in Iowa, I believe in addition to going to buy one at a pharmacy, I think some of them are actually available um, for free. Um if you'd know where to look. Um, so definitely want to explore that. And we should remind people too, that getting the vaccine itself is actually free um, in the United States. So two free things to help us all work through this. Well, one thing, one thing I want to comment on if we have a couple minutes. Sure. So th- there are these products called monoclonal antibodies, which are actually pr- uh, the product that we currently use is made by a company out of California called Regeneron. And ideally, we like to give it to those people who have contracted COVID and who are at risk for progression to more severe disease. And there's certain criteria. So so these are actually synthetically synthesized antibodies against the spike protein. And basically, uh, it's a passive way of getting immunized. It is basically an immunization. We're giving you manufactured antibodies. So the, the thing that people have noticed is there are people that will not get a vaccine, but when they get sick, they will ask for monoclonal antibodies, which uh, doesn't make sense to those of us that are in medicine, because you could have avoided that whole scenario by getting the vaccine in the first place and producing your own antibodies. And we have more experience with vaccines. If you're worried about safety, uh, you know, these are completely new synthetic monoclonal antibodies, and we don't have nearly as much experience with them as we have with vaccines, which we've had for, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years now. I I was seeing monoclonal antibodies mentioned more frequently in the media just here in the past month and remembering that we've actually, I know we've been promoting the, its use um, almost a year, I think, going back to December that we were using them for for folks. Um, the, other, the other thing that gets mentioned in those media headlines um, is something called ivermectin. So ivermectin has been around for about 40 years. Uh, it is FDA approved for humans for certain parasitic conditions, predominantly in the developing world. It is one of the most important drugs to treat a parasitic infection called loa loa, which causes river blindness, mostly in Western Africa. In the U.S., it has been used for recalcitrant uh, 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 lice infestations, um, uh, and, and that's about it. And of course, in the veterinary medicine, it's used a lot for deworming of various veterinary, uh, uh, various domestic animals, uh, but uh, obviously in much higher doses. The formulations are much different for veterinary medicine. Um, so in the beginning of the pandemic, especially in low resource countries where they really didn't have anything else, Uh, but they have a lot of ivermectin because there's a lot of parasitic infections there and it's widely available. It's very inexpensive there. There there were some research papers out that looked at the antiviral effect of ivermectin and there were some promising in vitro data, meaning in a test tube, uh, you could put some ivermectin in there and kill a whole bunch of viruses. So people looked at that data and they said, wow, you know, here we have this horrible virus. We really have nothing else. We have a lot of ivermectin. Let's try it. And all kinds of uh, poorly designed studies were done and uh, very well uh, designed randomized controlled trials were few and far between. 
And, you know, the, the results were kind of a mixed bag and people that uh, are accustomed to looking at these studies saw all kinds of problems with many of them. But one of the most important problems with these studies is that uh, in test tube testing that they did using the ivermectin to kill viruses, you needed to have a concentration that was 200 times higher than you could safely achieve in the human body. So taking ivermectin in hopes of killing this virus in your body, you know, you would have to take such a high dose, you would probably die of the medicine uh, rather before you would kill the virus because it is toxic in high doses. So it doesn't make a lot of mechanistic sense I know there's a lot of controversy about it out there, but the people that I rely on, uh, the, the Infectious Disease Society of America, the uh, NIH, the FDA, the CDC, uh, various uh, uh, learned people who are in universities and who know a lot about these types of issues have said that the only place for ivermectin is in a well-designed randomized controlled trial in the United States. So if you want to participate in a trial to see if it does anything, and, and it has to be a well-designed randomized controlled trial because you won't know if you're getting the real thing or placebo, uh, you know, th that's the only role for it currently. But just uh, taking it haphazard willy-nilly, um, you know, it's probably not gonna really do anything. And of course, taking the veterinary compound uh, people have gotten into real serious trouble. Um, and, and, and that's what people need to understand. Uh, there's veterinary compounds and there's human compounds or human doses. And, and, and uh, the human doses um, are very good for treating parasites, but probably we're not going to achieve high enough level to kill the virus in the body. Well, Dr. Vimuri, I, I definitely appreciate you once again taking the time. I I could sit here and we could talk for another 20 minutes, but I know that um, you've got other places to be and, and things to do like that. So um, we'll wrap it up for, for today and, and look forward to, to having you on um, another time down the road. Um, real quickly before we wrap, I just want to remind listeners that um, Dr. Vimuri has been on um, our podcast. I think this is the fourth or fifth time. And if you do have additional um questions about about what we spoke about today um i would encourage you to look back through our feed and find some of those and you can also send us questions um by emailing podcast at mercyhealth.com or going to mercyone.org slash podcast there's a form you can fill out send in your questions and feedback and we can address it on a future episode well dr vermiri uh thanks a lot again for joining us anything you want to say before we hit the road yeah, everybody stay safe. There's still a lot of transmission in the community. And uh, if you're sitting on the fence, please jump off the fence and go get vaccinated. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for listening and live your best life.